Ending late fees was a failed attempt to cover up a fundamental mistake made when Andy Ako did not enthusiastically embrace the miracle that was DVD. Now, innovative competitors were exploiting Blockbuster's weekend stores and rewriting the rules of the game. Netflix used never pay late fees again to attract disgruntled Blockbuster customers and kept them happy by mailing them mostly older movies that Blockbuster did not have. After ignoring them for four years, Aniako finally responded with the in-store movie pass, the end of late fees, and eventually total access by mail with its free in-store rentals. Every program weakened the only advantage Blockbuster had, the ready availability of new releases at attractive prices. Blockbuster stores were weaker than ever, and now, like a pack of wolves stalking a wounded animal, thousands of red box kiosks were surrounding every Blockbuster store in the country and preparing for the final attack. The death spiral was steepening. This is from the book Built to Fail, the inside story of Blockbuster's inevitable bust by Alan Payne. If you're old enough to remember going to Blockbuster on the weekends, then when asked, like most people, you'd probably say Netflix killed Blockbuster. If you know a little bit more, maybe you know the story of how Blockbuster infamously passed on the opportunity to buy Netflix for $50 million back in 2000. The more I read this book, the more I enjoyed it because it gave me a completely different viewpoint on the collapse of Blockbuster. The author of the book is actually a former franchisee, and he happens to be one of the most successful franchisees and managed to keep his stores open well after the company declared bankruptcy. So it's a really fascinating vantage point. The easiest way to examine things is to break things out by the CEO. Blockbuster, as you and I would know it, had four CEOs, not including the original founder. The two most impactful CEOs were Wayne Huizenga and John Antiaco. These two also had the longest tenures. And so that's where most of the story takes place. But before getting into the story of Blockbuster itself, it's helpful to know a little bit about the video rental business itself. So before 1975, the movies, the movie studios had total control over what you saw and when you saw it. The movies would play in theaters for limited runs, and then they would disappear for years. TV stations could license movies and decide what they were going to show and what times movies would play, but ultimately the consumer had no control. Then in 1975, the VCR came out and suddenly people could, could record shows off TV, they could buy movies and watch them at home whenever they wanted. The movie studios are not happy about this and they sue Sony claiming that it was infringing on their copyrights by allowing people to record movies. And the courts initially rule in favor of the studios, but the case is appealed all the way to the Supreme Court where just a 5-4 decision reverses the lower court and they say that VHS and Betamax are legal. 
And so the, the studios say that if you want to own the movie, then you're going to have to pay a lot more than if you just want to go see the movie in the theater. So the studios start charging $100 to purchase a movie, which in like the 1980s is $400, you know, in today's money. So needless to say, the average person is not going out and buying movies for that kind of money. So what ends up happening is that retailers end up buying movies and creating rental clubs. And these video rental clubs end up being extremely profitable. And rather than seeing this as an opportunity, the studios don't like this at all. And they start to lobby Congress and try to get a ban on video rentals. But at this point, renting videos is extremely popular and nobody in Congress has any appetite for any more legislation or lawsuits and the video rental industry is officially born. And one of these rental stores happens to be Blockbuster Video, founded by David, David Cook in October 1985 with the first location opening in Dallas, Texas. And these stores are very colorful, they're in high traffic, accessible locations, and Cook has plans for rapid expansion and what he describes as a store in a box that can be set up very quickly for franchisees. But Cook is going to need public funding for this planned expansion. He has 20 stores at the time, and he wants to build a thousand. But analysts are very critical of his plan and say that basically anyone can do what he's doing. And so to finance his expansion, Cook sells 60% of the company in 1986 for $18.5 million to a gentleman named Wayne Heizenga, who was going to take over as chairman and CEO. So who is Wayne Heizenga? I had never heard of Wayne Heizenga before reading this book. And I've read a lot of business and financial books. And so it came as a bit of a shock that I've never come across this gentleman. If I did, it was a little blurb and it wasn't enough to stick out to me. But he is the only person to have built three Fortune 500 companies, Waste Management, Blockbuster, and AutoNation. I don't know if Elon Musk has quite reached that level, but you know I'm sure he will at some point. But anyways... Heizenga is a self-made billionaire. He founded his first garbage company in 1962 with a $5,000 loan from his father-in-law so he can buy a truck and some routes in Broward County, Florida. And he would eventually grow that into waste management, taking the company public in 1971. Quote, Every successful video store owner of the day had discovered a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and thousands took full advantage, but no one had the vision or the financial skills to do it the way Heizenga did it." Unquote. And another quote from the book, quote, 
Staying true to his waste management strategy, Huizenga bought hundreds of competitors, almost always with company stock to preserve cash. Sometimes he bought them to convert to a blockbuster store and other times to close them, which would push more sales to nearby blockbuster stores." Unquote. Demand for video rentals was so high that every store was cash flow positive when it opened. Recognizing the initial criticism of Cook's IPO plan, Huizenga planned to expand as quickly as possible because he knew anyone could do what Blockbuster was doing at that time. In just a couple of years, Blockbuster goes from 20 stores to over 1,000, and it would open 2,000 more over the next three years. Huizenga's approach could be best described as growth at all costs. For example, when the computer system needs to be upgraded for the stores, Huizenga tells them to figure it out another way because he needs that money to build stores. Quote, for all his genius in marshalling the resources to grow Blockbuster, he simply did not care about how the stores operated so long as they were open and generating fabulous sales and profits." Unquote. You can almost see some parallels to Jack Welch if you listen to the previous episode on GE. By, er, excuse me, quote, by 1992, just six years after Heisenga, took control of Blockbuster, the company dominated the industry and was generating more cash than it could spend opening new stores." Unquote. Heizenga had not constructed a company that was built to last, however. He had built a very big and profitable company by being first and being fast. There was never any concern that anyone could do it better, however. So as a matter of fact, the author, Alan Payne, got his start at a video rental store that was, in fact, doing it better. If you've lived in Texas, then you're probably familiar with a grocery store called AGB. For those of you who don't know AGB, it is a fabulous store with extensive selections, ready-made meals, in-house bakeries, meats cooked on site, private labels, items, etc. High focus on local products and customer service, very strong customer satisfaction and loyalty in the state of Texas. In fact, when Sam Walton got the idea to implement grocery stores with the Hypermart sort of model, he recruited a manager from HEB named Rich Donkers to lead the grocery division. So, Payne states that Video Central was the location that he learned everything about business. He says that even though he spent 25 years as a blockbuster franchisee, he learned almost 
nothing of value during that time. With the high traffic in grocery stores, video rental sections were a natural fit, and HEB took it to the next step and decided to create a whole standalone video rental chain. And that is what would become Video Central. The first location opened in San Antonio in 1987 and was an immediate success. A blockbuster soon opened across the street and the Video Central employees anticipate sales quickly declining, but nothing happens. The Video Central staff decides to rummage through the dumpsters at Blockbuster, and they see that it's only doing about $8,000 a week, while Video Central is generating $25,000 a week. Video Central takes direct aim at Blockbuster and starts building more stores. They bring the relentless, never-satisfied attitude of HEB to the rental industry. They are always looking for ways to do things better. And they see that because new releases are always in high demand, Video Central decides to limit rentals to one night rather than two nights like block like Blockbuster is doing. So this is also where the basic economics of the industry are very important. At this point in the story, everyone is still on VHS and movies cost about $65 for the stores to purchase. The rental price is generally about $3. So a video has to be rented 22 times in order for the store to start making a profit. The vast majority of rentals occur on the weekend. So if a Video Central sticks to one day rentals, then they get to rent a new release on Friday and then again on Saturday. But at Blockbuster, it gets rented on Friday, but it's not due back until Sunday when it probably won't get rented again until that next Friday. At Blockbuster, they also charge the same for new releases and old movies. But Video Central reduces the price of old movies to a dollar. Since the old movies aren't in very high demand, they also decide to experiment with the time frame on those rentals. They say that an older movie rented on a Saturday for five days will still be back in stock that following Thursday, and so it'll be back on the shelves ready to be rented again for that weekend. The customers love these changes. They start renting more, and it's basically the first version of binge-watching, and they're, they're taking a lot of old movies Whereas most people wanted to rent new releases when they're going over to Blockbuster. And so with the availability of these cheap older movies that people can keep for five days, it takes a lot of the pressure off of the supply chain and there's less pressure on these new releases at Video Central.
adding that to the one day rental window on the new releases takes a lot of pressure off the new releases and keeps the customers happy and renting more frequently. Another thing that they look at, since they have access to HEB supply chains, they experiment with stocking all kinds of ancillary items that they think people might want to buy when they go to rent a movie. But at the end of the day, they find that all customers want when they go to rent a movie is the same stuff when they go to see a movie in the theaters. All they want is the movie and some snacks. Video Central is doing extremely well, but the chairman of HEB decides he doesn't want to expand outside of the HEB markets. And he realizes that this is going to limit the management team's opportunities to grow. And he looks for a chance to sell Video Central. Hyzinga expresses some interest in purchasing the company but HEB makes it clear that the sale is contingent on finding comparable management roles for the Video Central personnel within the Blockbuster hierarchy. And the discussions basically stall after that. Whatever the ultimate reason for the deal not going through, HEB was a far bigger company than Blockbuster, and the Video Central deal is a minor transaction for them. So they're in no rush. They want to make sure that their people go to a good landing spot. But had Blockbuster paid more attention, they would have noticed that the Video Central stores had far better sales and were much more profitable. But even more concerning was that all the Blockbuster stores that competed with a Video Central performed well below their national average. A deal would finally take shape in July 1993 when a chain of video stores from Oregon called Hollywood Video acquired 33 of the 35 Video Central stores for $30.5 million, with management joining as well. Hollywood Video had 15 stores when it bought Video Central in 1993. They would have 1,000 in 1998 and 1,000 more by the year 2000. Their strategy was straight from Video Central. Find the best performing blockbusters and open up right across the street from them. This would have devastating effects. Blockbuster sales declined while costs to run the stores remained fixed. So... Alan Payne ends up taking a different path after the Hollywood video deal. A cable company in Austin, Texas called Prime Cable had purchased franchise rights to multiple blockbusters in Texas and Alaska, but they're having trouble running the stores profitably. In 1993, Payne ends up leaving Video Central to become president of Prime Video, which had 18 stores at the time, and he ends up implementing all the strategies from Video Central in the blockbusters that he takes over. 
Soon the Prime Video stores had completely turned around and were among the best-performing blockbusters nationally. He even won an award for Franchisee of the Year. In 1994, Sumner Redstone of Viacom and Barry Diller of QVC are both trying to acquire Paramount, Paramount Pictures. Redstone ultimately works out a merger agreement with Hyzinga, and Viacom basically buys Blockbuster for $8.4 billion. The idea behind that is that Blockbuster is still a cash machine, and by having it under the Viacom umbrella, it will ultimately help pay for Paramount Pictures, which Redstone does end up acquiring for another $8.3 billion. Viacom anticipates that Blockbuster will generate $3 billion in free cash flow from, 94, from, from 1994 through 1999 while still funding new store expansion. By this time, Blockbuster had opened thousands of stores, but Hollywood Video is catching up. Blockbuster had gone from making so much money they can't spend it fast enough to suddenly losing money by 1997. Keep in mind, this is 10 years before Netflix starts streaming movies online. Heisinga and his partners end up turning an $18.5 million investment in Blockbuster into $8.4 billion. Heisinga personally makes $600 million. Anyone who had invested in the Blockbuster IPO in 1989, or any time after that, during the Heizenga years, ends up doing extremely well. Conversely, anyone who ends up investing after the merger and the subsequent Viacom spinoff in 1999 will go on to lose a ton of money, including Carl Icahn. After the sale, Heizenga goes on to start AutoNation. He owns the Florida Marlins, the Florida Panthers, and the Miami Dolphins, but that's basically where his involvement in the story comes to an end. As Blockbuster's cash flow collapses, it drags down Viacom with it. Now that there's competition from Hollywood Video, the Heizenga strategy of growth at all costs simply does not work. And this is sort of where you can see that parallel again with Jack Welch building GE through aggressive expansion and acquisition and how what worked for one CEO is not really a viable option for the one who's about to take over. And so Sumner Redstone pursues one of the most sought after retail experts in the country. He's the heir apparent to be the CEO of Walmart. This gentleman is Bill Fields. And Payne notes that, quote, Sam Walton had transformed retail and Fields had been there almost every step of the way, unquote. Payne is very excited by the potential Fields, by the potential Fields joining has for the company. Fields attends a franchise, franchisee meeting, but isn't interested in getting their opinions about what's going wrong or why they think they're outperforming the corporate stores. Instead, 
he embarks on a strategy to basically turn Blockbuster into Walmart. He reduced shelf space for videos and begins experimenting with sales of all sorts of items like books and electronics, clothing, software, stuffed animals, etc. He never stops to ask if anything like this has been tried in the past. And again, HEB had done it with Video Central and found time and again that all people want are their movies and their snacks. Ultimately, Blockbuster ends up writing off some $250 million in inventory that it simply cannot move. Sumner Redstone is pissed off and he fires Bill Fields for this ill-conceived strategy. And he says that until he has a new CEO, he's going to be personally running the day-to-day operations. And so after Fields is fired, Redstone hires John Antiaco, who will go on to lead the company from... 1997 through 2007. Antioco had risen through the ranks at 7-Eleven, starting as a trainee in 1970, and eventually rising to VP of Operations. He would then go on to become CEO of Circle K, leading it out of successful bankruptcy, and he was CEO of Taco Bell and engineer to turn around there as well. And the consensus opinion was that Antiaco was the man to, to run Blockbuster. When he starts, he realizes that they can't afford to price movies above Hollywood video. And he immediately cuts prices to improve their competitiveness. Sales improve, but they still don't see any need to price older movies less than the new releases. He also sees that inventory is an issue, but rather than address the outdated software system, he takes a different approach. And remember, the inventory software had already been brought up several years ago with Heisenga, who said he didn't want to waste money that could be used to build stores. Antiaco goes on to embark on a program called revenue sharing. And Payne suggests that this is a problem up until the company's bankruptcy. Payne says that a practical example would be that a store might typically have to pay $65 per copy when buying $100, or excuse me, when buying 100 copies of a new release. With revenue sharing, a studio would reduce the cost to $30 for 300 copies for a total of $9,000 instead of the $6,500. The studios all had different agreements, but they would essentially then have a portion of the rental revenues from that video moving forward. Some of the studios even had deals where Blockbuster had to pay them regardless of whether the rentals generated enough to cover the cost of the purchase for Blockbuster. What made the deal so enticing for Blockbuster was that the studios only required Blockbuster put down a fraction of what it owed for each movie, typically something like $7 for each $30 movie. And the payments could 
even be made over six months instead of the typical 60 days. The revenue sharing program ended up being a huge boon to the film industry and helped fund a lot of independent movies that otherwise would never have been made. Payne says he tried the program for about six months, but it didn't provide any benefit, so he stopped it. He also points out that by this time, the price of older movies had come down significantly and were as low as $8. And kids' movies were generally $20. And newer movies had come down to $40. He says that Antiaco and Redstone used the figure of $65 per movie to make it seem like they had been saving a lot of money by getting a deal for $30 per movie under this agreement that they had worked out with the studios. But really, it was just a bad deal, and they should not have been making it. Then, in 1997, the DVD emerges. Among other benefits, this ends the inconvenience of having to rewind a movie before returning it, or renting one that wasn't rewound. Wholesale DVDs were priced at about $17, which gives Blockbuster an opportunity to significantly reduce expenses. Compared to the $65 movie that needs to be rented 22 times, a DVD only had to be rented about four times. Plus, it could be sold used for about $8, bringing the true cost down to about $9. But one of the main creators of the DVD thinks that its low price will actually accelerate the end of rentals because he thinks that people will just be more inclined to buy a cheap movie as opposed to rent one. This would become increasingly true as studios dumped thousands of DVDs in sales bins throughout the likes of Walmart for just a few dollars. Blockbuster can't rent a movie for $4 if Walmart has it on sale for 5 In 1998, VHS still makes up 95% of the video rental business at Blockbuster. But Blockbuster executives take the position that Consumers are format agnostic and only care whether the store has a movie in stock, not what format it's available for. Quote, so if you visited a Blockbuster store in 2004 and walked the aisles in search of something other than, new, than a new release, you would see VHS movies alongside DVD movies. A VHS copy of The Godfather may have caught your eye, but the DVD version was missing. That was by design. Blockbuster thought you would just as soon rent the VHS version, unquote. In 1998, the typical store had 6,400 units in its catalog. In 2004, after transitioning to DVD, the, tip the typical store only had about 3,400 units. Lower inventory meant lower sales. With a DVD comes an entirely new category as well. TV shows. Payne tells his customers that his stores will get any titles they ask for. And in 2002, he wins the award for highest same-store sales growth. Blockbuster never shows any interest in how he ends up growing store sales every year while corporate sales decline. 
1998, Prime Cable ends up being sold to Cox Cable for $1 billion, but they give Payne the opportunity to purchase the Blockbuster stores he's been running. He ends up financing the purchase of the stores with a $13 million loan at 9.75% interest, as well as a $3 million loan from a private equity group that required a 30% return on investment. The deal ended up closing in 2000. The private equity group exited their investment just four years after they closed the deal with a 40% return on their investment, and he retired the loan in 2012. In 1999, Viacom spins off Blockbuster at a valuation of $2.7 billion after having just spent $8.4 billion for it five years earlier. Again, anyone who ends up investing in Blockbuster the second time will lose money, but the people that lended money to Payne do just fine. While DVDs drastically reduced expenses for Blockbuster, it also opens the door for Netflix. While Blockbuster has mountains of information about its customers over the years, it has no way or any desire to do anything with it. But everything about Netflix was data-driven. But remember, the early days of Netflix are much different than the streaming behemoth that it is today. Netflix, excuse me, Blockbuster had the instant gratification aspect of being able to go to the store and get the movie you wanted now. But Netflix has several distinct advantages as well. Netflix had a more extensive catalog. You could keep movies as long as you wanted without late fees. And Netflix had the ability to manage your, your queue. And for anyone who doesn't remember or never used the DVD version of Netflix, users would create a list of movies they wanted to receive and rank them in the order they wanted them to be delivered. But then Netflix had the ability to manage its supply chain by delivering the best available movie from your list. If you went to Blockbuster, however, and couldn't find the movie that you wanted, you may not just browse around until you found something different. There's a good chance that you would just leave without renting anything. In fact, only about 20% of the movies rented from Netflix were new releases, while at Blockbuster, that percentage was closer to 90%. Netflix was growing rapidly, but when the dot-com crash hit, its access to capital dried up and expansion became exceptionally difficult. Executives from Netflix, including Reed Hastings, met with Antiaco to propose 
Blockbuster buy Netflix for $50 million. Hastings wanted to join forces and run the online portion of what would be a merged business. At this time, Blockbuster was spending over a billion dollars annually just to purchase videos for the stores. So $50 million is nothing. But Antiaco doesn't see any benefit to Blockbuster buying Netflix, and he passes on the deal. Antiaco considers it a niche business and thinks Netflix will never have more than a few million subscribers. At the time of recording this in 2023, Netflix has over 230 million global subscribers. But even at 3 million subscribers, that represents the volume of roughly 750 blockbuster stores, which would have paid for the $50 million asking price. So with the lack of capital, Netflix was forced to slash its workforce aggressively in order to continue to grow. And it ends up going public two years later with a $300 million valuation, and they raise roughly $80 million through the public markets to fund further expansion. In May 2004, Blockbuster rolls out MoviePass, what it calls Netflix in a store. And this allows people to pay a monthly fee and keep a few DVDs at a time without late fees. The glaring oversight is that Netflix sent customers movies at its discretion, but Blockbuster customers are going to actively select what they want, and everyone going to the store wants new releases. So the more people that sign up for MoviePass, the fewer new releases and the more unhappy the non-movie pass customers are. Quote, Netflix was passionate about understanding what all their, subscri their sub subscribers were renting, and they used this data to create intensely loyal customers. In stark contrast, Blockbuster's first response to Netflix did not have a reporting system that could show franchisees what movie pass customers were renting, and as a result, they couldn't understand its effect on sales or rental behavior. As was the case with so many blockbuster initiatives, they were running in the blind, unquote. Blockbuster would then go on to launch a DVD by mail service. When its plans were made public, Netflix stock dropped 60%. Blockbuster's service and recommendations are nowhere near as good as Netflix's, and Blockbuster Online does nothing to slow down Netflix. In 2006, Blockbuster Online is rebranded as Total Access, and subscribers now had the option to return DVDs through the mail as usual, or to return them to a store where they could immediately rent another DVD for free instead of having to wait for it to come in the mail. As Reed Hastings described it, Blockbuster had thrown everything at them but the kitchen sink at which point John Antiaco had someone go to Home Depot and send Hastings a kitchen sink, which 
is a cute story if you're not simultaneously setting your company on fire. The success of total access means increased stress on the rental supply chain and the availability of new releases is now at an all-time low. Blockbuster is projecting that it can break even on total access once it hits 5 million subscribers. In 2007, at the Sundance Film Festival, Hastings meets with Antioco again. Hastings sees that the pricing for total access is completely unsustainable, and he offers to buy Blockbuster online for $200 per subscriber, or roughly $700 million. Blockbuster management rejected the offer, believing that they had all the momentum. They thought that if Netflix would pay that much for it now, they'd pay a lot more for it later. Quote, Antioco could have saved Blockbuster right then. He could have retired its debt, rebuilt the stores, depleted inventory, and returned the company to profitability. Blockbuster would have been well positioned to make the transition to movie delivery via internet which is where everyone knew the business was going, unquote. Payne notes that while the corporate stores are crumbling under the stress of assaults from Netflix and the strain of total access, his stores in Texas and Alaska are having record years. Quote, There is no reason to believe Blockbuster could not have run successful stores for several more years, the same as we did in Alaska and Texas. Just as Netflix used its DVD by mail business to build a bridge to streaming on the internet, Blockbuster could have done the same with its stores. Even though Netflix was a darling of Wall Street and was grabbing most of the headlines, at least five times more people still preferred to rent DVDs in stores instead of by mail. But John Antiaco consistently made decisions that weakened Blockbuster stores in what seemed to be a personal fight with Reed Hastings and Netflix. Unquote. During this time, it's not just Netflix that Blockbuster is contending with. The advent of DVD also gives rise to Redbox. The economics of traditional video stores did not work well in high-expense real estate locations like New York City, for example. A former VP of Lehman Brothers named Greg Meyer thought kiosks might be the answer for these locations. And so Meyer starts DVD Express kiosks, launching three in Dwayne, Dwayne Reed drugstores in late 2001. He loads the kiosks with new releases and rents them for a dollar a day. The low prices were offset by the low operating costs. It didn't take much to install a vending machine somewhere compared to the fixed costs associated with running a blockbuster store. Meyer sees that there's a lot of potential here and wants to scale as quickly as possible. Just as Reed Hastings had done, Greg Meyer meets with Blockbuster executives to give them the chance to work together. Meyer sees that there's going to be a land grab. A small number of retailers controlled a disproportionately large share of customer traffic. These were going to be the prime locations for kiosks, and they were going to go fast. By combining the Blockbuster brand and resources with his kiosks, he felt they could expand and take over the market. But talks with Blockbuster fizzle out and go nowhere. Around this same time, 
Mitch Lowe is meeting with Netflix co-founder Mark Randolph. Mitch Lowe had opened some of the first rental stores in the early 80s and had helped Netflix build their initial inventory. But Lowe felt that Netflix's major weakness was the fact that people could still walk into a blockbuster and leave with the movie they wanted instantly, whereas they had to wait for Netflix to mail it to them. So in 2003, Lowe convinces Reed Hastings to let him set up a few DVD vending machines around Las Vegas. People love them, but Hastings doesn't think that they're necessary. So Mitch Lowe ends up taking his idea to McDonald's, and Redbox is born. Quote, Redbox's immense potential was beyond the scope of McDonald's plans. So in 2005, Lowe looked for a new partner and offered to sell half the company to Blockbuster for $30 million. But as had been the case for Blockbuster's entire history, it did not understand the threat posed by its new competitor and ignored them until it was too late, unquote. Coinstar ends up investing in both companies, later gaining control of them. Over the next several years, Redbox explodes. And by 2011, there are 30,000 units across the country. Blockbuster did not appreciate the threat because they didn't think these little machines could compete with their fancy stores. But the machines are everywhere, sometimes multiple machines at one store. Redbox had more movies and lower prices. The DVDs could also be reserved online and returned to any kiosk, not just the one they had been rented from. Meanwhile, every response Blockbuster had had the result of either increasing prices or limiting supply. Quote, so much had been written about Antioco declining Reed Hastings' offer to sell Netflix to Blockbuster that the Redbox story is often overlooked. But Blockbuster's failure to understand the threat posed by DVD kiosks was much more indefensible. Netflix's subscription business model was a new idea and its focus on renting older movies was a concept Blockbuster had not grasped from its founding. Although a more intellectually curious company might have better understood Netflix's potential, it is not difficult to understand why Blockbuster did not. But Blockbuster's miss on Redbox seems like reckless negligence." Unquote. The other critical mistake Blockbuster makes during this time involves late fees. Customers were generally charged a dollar daily for each rental that was not returned on time. But Blockbuster could sometimes be harsh with the fees and could take customers to collections depending on the amount owed. In 2004, Antioco learns of a franchisee in Chattanooga, who had successfully eliminated late fees, and he wants to know more about this experience. 
This franchisee basically replaced late fees with phone calls reminding people to return their videos. Most people did return their rentals on time. The franchisee meets with Antiaco and stresses with him that the system worked for his small store but may not be appropriate for everyone everywhere. Antiaco ends up moving forward with the elimination of late fees. And to give this some perspective, in 2000, late fees generated $800 million, accounting for 16% of revenue. But more importantly, with no late fees to incentivize customers to return videos on time, videos would be unavailable for longer periods, which meant the stores would have to buy more copies in order to meet demand. The stress on the supply chain becomes greater as more and more people keep videos for longer and longer amounts of time. So Blockbuster launches a guaranteed in stock program, but simply saying something is guaranteed in stock doesn't make it so. When people go to the store and the guaranteed movies aren't available, they get free rentals. This policy ends up costing the company millions of free rentals. Payne explains to his customers why late fees are necessary in order to control the supply chain and why his stores will be maintaining them. They post signs in the stores and send sign letters to customers, including contact information, so that customers can, can complain and ask questions. He held store meetings with staff to explain the company position and make sure that all employees understood it so that they could answer questions from customers correctly. Ultimately, his customers had no problem with the late fees as long as they were fair. Payne stresses that if Blockbuster wanted to make things easier for customers, they, quote, could have stopped mailing late fee bills to customers. They could have eliminated bad debt as a budget item, so store managers were not encouraged to collect it at all costs. They could have wiped out all late fee balances and started fresh with a new, more customer-friendly approach. They could have rewarded customers for returning movies on time with credits to their account. Unquote. Nine months after eliminating late fees, so late 2005, profits had plummeted the stock price had been cut in half, there had been multiple layoffs, and there was already talk of bankruptcy. During this time, Payne says his stores are still thriving. He still sees an opportunity and asks to buy some of the failing corporate stores. There are 24 stores in San Antonio that he identifies as an opportunity. He tells corporate that he basically plans to reverse everything that they've done in the stores. He's going to bring back late fees, lower prices, stop the movie pass, total access plans, expand inventory, and limit the new releases to one-day rentals. They have a deal in place, but then corporate pulls the plug. And basically, if Payne goes in there and turns things around, by undoing every bold initiative that they've tried over the past several years, then what does that say about the leadership? So better 
to burn down the company than to look foolish. Since corporate won't sell Payne any more stores, he looks for other franchisees who are looking to get out of the business. A franchisee in the Rio Grande Valley area of Texas, so the southernmost portion of Texas, is looking to sell 13 stores. Payne points out that this area had twice the population of Chattanooga, which was the area used to base the decision for eliminating the late fees. Payne implements all of his changes and cash flow triples in 18 months. He tries multiple times to talk with Antiaco so that he can try to convince him that they're doing something that works at their stores. Finally, in 2005, Antiaco tells Payne that he's going on this fishing trip to Alaska, and he says, why don't you fly up there with me? But he, he goes out of his way to let him know he's not inviting him to go fishing with him, but he can fly up in his plane, but you have to find your own way back. You can, you fly, you're going to have to charter your own flight back. But if you want to just sit in the plane and talk with me, this is your chance to talk. And so Payne takes the opportunity. And Payne says that he tries to talk with Antiaco, but he doesn't really seem very engaged. And he doesn't really listen to what he's saying. And he seems more interested in how he's financed the, the deal to buy the, buy the stores after... Um, the cable company was was purchased, and he's talking. He's talking to a friend about this afterwards, and the friend tells him, "Quote, don't you get it? Antiaco asked you along so he could turn that fishing trip into a business trip, to convert a taxable personal trip on the company plane into a routine business trip to visit franchise stores in Alaska." Unquote. And Payne says, quote, If that was the case, it must have been torture to have me along to talk about Blockbuster instead of fishing, unquote. Antiaco would ultimately resign from Blockbuster in 2007 after increasing tension with Carl Icahn, who had become the largest shareholder. Icahn thinks he's doing a lousy job, and they get into a dispute over a a bonus amount that Antiaco is supposed to have and ultimately Antiaco resigns and when Antiaco leaves there were about 8,000 stores and he had seen the opening of more than 3,000 of them during his last five years on the job same same store sales were the worst in history. Payne notes that Pennsylvania had a population of about 13 million people and 93 blockbuster stores or roughly 130,000 people per store. Alaska, on the other hand, had only 700,000 people and 16 stores, or about 40,000 people per store. But the stores in Alaska 
generate 25% more profit than the stores in Pennsylvania. Payne points out that the rental business is simply much different than conventional retail, but everyone who's brought in to lead Blockbuster has extensive experience selling things. And this would be no different with the next CEO, Jim Keyes, who had been CEO at 7-Eleven, where Antiaco had once worked as well. Highlighting the impact of the right people, Payne notes that HEB still had around 40 successful in-store video rental departments after selling the Video Central stores to Hollywood Video. But with management all gone to Hollywood Video, day-to-day operations had been left to traditional grocery managers, and within two years, the stores had all become unprofitable and were closed. All that said, Blockbuster was still number one in home entertainment at this point in the story. As an added bonus, as Jim Keyes is taking over, Blockbuster is not the only one feeling strained from Netflix and Redbox. And Hollywood Video had also grown too fast and made some poor acquisitions. And it went bankrupt in 2005, ultimately to be acquired by Movie Gallery. And Movie Gallery closed a thousand stores in 2007, and then ultimately all of them in 2010. And so to sort of summarize things to this point, Quote, even though 50 million customers were still visiting Blockbuster stores every month, seven times more than the seven million subscribers Netflix had at the time, Antiochos' failed strategies had so buried Blockbuster under a bloated cost structure, the company was barely profitable. Blockbuster had $1 billion of debt, all of which was due in the next three years. It would have It would have to be paid or refinanced, but in its current financial condition, there was no clear path to do either. With over 3.5 million subscribers, total access was still unprofitable, and even though they claimed it would break even at 5 million subscribers, it was impossible to quantify the damage that millions of free rentals was inflicting on the stores. Blockbuster had store lease liabilities of $2.4 billion dollars, 650 million of which was due after 2010, one year after Blockbuster eventually filed bankruptcy. Killing the stores in favor of a Netflix by mail clone was never an option. Redbox had over 7,000 kiosks and was opening thousands more every year. But even more importantly, they had already forged relationships with virtually every major retailer in the country essentially cornering the market, unquote. Of course, the backdrop of all this unfolding now is the beginning of the great financial crisis, and as time goes on, financial markets freeze, 
further limiting Blockbuster's ability to refinance debt. Consumer spending decreases and sales plummet some 20% across the board. Pay notices the same decrease at his stores as well. With the worsening financial situation, Keyes agrees that the total access program is a losing proposition and tries to throttle the program by raising the price. But this just has the effect of sending more customers to Netflix. Quote, with fewer total access subscribers, more new releases were available for customers to rent in stores, and he was able to better manage costs. Sales stabilized in 2007 and 2008, and profits were steady for a brief period. Carl Icahn cheered. There was little question that Blockbuster was sick and needed new medicine that has been administered by Jim Keyes and his team. They are to be highly congratulated and remarkably, Keyes successfully refinanced a portion of Blockbuster's debt that was due in 2009. Even with the horrible effect of the Great Recession, Keyes believed he had stabilized a sinking ship and had positioned it for the future." Unquote. In August 2008, Keyes announces a plan to roll out DVD vending machines, or Blockbuster Express, but it would come too late like they had talked to Blockbuster about when they wanted to work together. The good locations were limited, and Redbox had systematically captured them all. Keyes is the first CEO who's interested in how pain is consistently outperforming corporate, but ultimately feels that his plan is not scalable. The continued success of Payne's stores show that Blockbuster, as a business, could have been viable for longer, but ultimately streaming was the future, and even Redbox has to, has to come to that pressure. Netflix begins streaming in 2007, but the titles are limited and could only be viewed on a desktop initially. In 2008, Starz licenses its catalog to Netflix for $30 million a year, and in 2010, Epix does the same, but the price is now $200 million a year. Something crucial to remember at this time is that Xbox 360 and then the PlayStation 3 had come out in 2005 and 2006, respectively. And they both eventually get apps for them that allow streaming directly to a TV instead of a computer monitor. And so there's some 70 million of these consoles that now have the ability to stream movies and TV shows from these catalogs that Netflix has just paid for. Quote, It was considered found money by the studios, paid to them by an upstart streaming service, too small to matter. But those two deals accelerated Netflix's growth and brought over 12 million new subscribers in just three years. Unwittingly, Hollywood had created its biggest competitor and it has been playing catch up ever since." Unquote. Again, everyone had a sense that streaming was the future and even Blockbuster was not completely blind to this fact. In fact, Keyes had purchased a website called MovieLink in August 2007. This was a joint venture of multiple Hollywood studios that rented and sold movies on demand. It has the infrastructure needed for streaming, but lacks the content. Keyes is presented the chance to buy the rights to the exact content from Stars and Epics that Netflix buys 
but for half the price. Unlike all the other opportunities Blockbuster passed on because they just knew better than everyone else, this time Keys has to pass because the company is too cash-strapped. Netflix has the money, and the rest is history. In a final attempt to save the company, Keys tries to bring back late fees, but it's too late. On September 23, 2010, Blockbuster files for bankruptcy. Shareholders are wiped out. Creditors receive pennies on the dollar. Carl Icahn loses almost $185 million and calls Blockbuster the worst investment he's ever made. In the year leading to bankruptcy, though, Blockbuster generated almost a billion dollars more in sales than it did in 1994 when it was sold to Viacom. But the company had opened too many stores and strayed too far from its fundamentals. Ultimately, Dish Network wins the auction to buy Blockbuster's assets in April 2011 for $320 million, a far cry from the $8.4 billion that Viacom had spent in 1994. Dish closes hundreds of unprofitable stores and keeps about 1,500 open in the U.S. Not realizing that its customers only want to buy movies and snacks, Dish has plans to sell Dish wireless communication services in the stores, but they never even end up going into mobile, so that doesn't pan out. One of the Dish executives speaks to Payne about his stores, and he's the first one that really wants to understand why he is still so successful and wants to duplicate what he is doing. And he comes up with various pricing models to test broader scale throughout the rest of the stores. And he comes up with these different model names, the pain hybrid, the pure pain, and the aggressive pain. But ultimately, Dish was not committed to maintaining adequate inventory in the stores, and you can't rent what you don't have. A little more than a year after buying Blockbuster, Dish starts to close more stores, and the pace of the closures accelerates, and in January 2014, Dish closes the last corporate-owned Blockbuster store. Of the 1,200 franchised stores, only 50 are left at this point, and Payne owns 26 of them, 13 in Alaska and 13 in Texas. Over the years, he had been forced to close unprofitable stores, but he says that the remaining 26 had profit margins that were higher than any Blockbuster stores of the last 20 years, which is truly incredible. He's either an outstanding businessman or he was simply put on earth to run Blockbuster stores, or maybe both. Dish informs the franchisees that they're now on their own, basically. The only thing that the franchisees can't do for themselves, however, is run the computer system. And without that, the stores cannot operate. A longtime computer support manager at Blockbuster, who got his first job working there in 1992, his name is Dave Carrera, he hears about what's going on and he wants to help out. And so he sets up a way that the stores can stay operational even when corporate shuts down. Within a few years, 
all the other franchised stores are closed except for Payne's and the one in Bend, Oregon, which at the time of recording this on August 16th, 2023, is still open. Slowly but surely, Payne has to close stores. He says he gets interview requests as they happen, but he feels the story is simply too complex for a three-minute segment on TV or an interview for a newspaper, and so that's what prompts him to write the book. In 2018, he closes the last store in Texas, which attracted press coverage because Blockbuster had started in Dallas, and then later that year, he closes the last store in Anchorage as well. Quote, our stores had provided the first job for thousands of people over the course of almost 30 years, and it was a training ground for ambitious employees to become managers and learn how to run a business, how to hire and train great employees, how to merchandise stores, how to manage costs and understand an income statement, and most important, how to build teams of people who understood and bought into common goals. Those teams of people built the longest lasting chain of blockbuster stores in the country. It always seemed more like a mission than work. And with that last fight out of Anchorage, it was over, unquote. And so that is Built to Fail, the inside story of Blockbuster's inevitable bust by Alan Payne. It is a very insightful view of the decline of Blockbuster. It had a lot more information than I thought I was going to learn. I didn't realize just how poorly managed this company was and the numerous opportunities that it had to turn itself around. Um, Thank you so much for listening.